this guy was running around with, I don't know, 20 Wi-Fi pineapples on his back and like a, a car battery to power them really crazy. And he was sniffing basically all Wi-Fi channels at the same time. And I was like, hey, I can I can do the same with this chip. And it would be way smaller, way cheaper, way more power efficient. And I don't have to carry it around the entire time <laughs> on my back, at least. Imagine your company relies on some sort of Wi-Fi device to do your daily work. Maybe you use IoT devices like wireless security cameras, printers, ticket scanners, or laptops to get things done without needing to plug everything in. One day, imagine that everything just stops working. Payments won't process on tablets, ticket scanners won't read tickets, and both wireless security cameras and printers all become paperweights. An IT professional might suspect that a deauthentication attack is at play, but after turning off every device in the office, the attacks continue. Wi-Fi just doesn't work, but weeks later, everyone is confused to find that everything just starts working again when someone unplugs the lamp in the break room. It turns out, a smart light with an ESP8266 microcontroller can kill any Wi-Fi connection. And on our second Security Tools podcast, we're speaking to Stefan, who's going to tell us a little bit more about the history of this microchip and why it's capable of doing all the things it can do. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on our podcast. From Veronis today, we have our two guests. Uh, this is Mike Buckby. And this is Blair Dobbs. And today we're sitting down with Stefan Kremser, who is the researcher responsible for working with the ESP8266 microcontroller to create the super popular Dauther project. Stefan, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the ESP8266? Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I work on a lot of projects with the ESP8266, mostly Arduino related to make little hacking gadgets that are uh, open and uh, accessible for everyone to recreate and mostly cheap. And uh, yeah, the ESP8266 is a small Wi-Fi based uh, microcontroller and it was originally intended to be used to add Wi-Fi to products like uh, smart home devices, stuff like this. But um, I quickly found out that you can hack this pretty easily and do things like packet injection and stuff that you could usually just do with more expensive hardware. So for anybody who's not familiar with packet injection, that is the ability to basically participate in a conversation that you're not supposed to be part of. So if two people are having a Wi-Fi conversation, let's say somebody in their router are communicating data, you would be able to use this little device to start injecting packets into that conversation and cause things like forcing someone to disconnect. Honestly, that's like even too advanced for me at the moment. So like, I'd be very interested to know, like... How did you even get started in saying like, hey, I need to use the ESP8266, not the 65. Like that one's no good. The 66 <laughs> is where it's at. My background is in like web development and software development. So anything with hardware is, you know, pretty foreign to me. But like, how do you get started? Like, Yeah, good point. So for me, the journey just began by making, yeah, starting out with Arduino stuff in general. So Arduino is this kind of community, but yeah, also a big platform to work on microcontrollers. And um, yeah, I just wanted to start doing that. I wanted to do that for a while. And uh, I watched the Hack 5 interview, I think, and someone mentioned that Wi-Fi chip, that ESP8266, and uh, was super hyped about it. And so I looked into it and saw, oh, okay, this can do Wi-Fi. I haven't done anything Wi-Fi related yet, really. Uh, let's just buy this chip. And I found it, it's super, super cheap, like, like $2 from China. 
kind of cheap, but I was pretty much bored quickly because yeah, just creating networks, just joining networks is kind of this kind of home automation thing is, is not doing it for me. So I thought, what else can I do with this? I'd be very interested to know just even like the basics. Like when you say chip, like I'm familiar with like a Raspberry Pi, which is like a mini computer. When you say chip, like, do I need to power it? Is that part of another device? Like how much is there? Like what does it run that I get onto it and stuff? That's an excellent point. Maybe you could explain a little bit about the, the difference between a microcontroller and the, a regular computer so people understand like what we're, we're working with. Okay, so a microcontroller is basically a small computer, but just everything is on a chip. You don't have a keyboard or a monitor or something like that. It's just a little chip, but it has everything a computer would need, like a CPU, RAM, memory, all that stuff, right? And you can program it. The code usually runs bare metal, meaning you don't have an operating system or stuff like this. And if you have operating systems, then those are real-time operating systems, stuff that is not similar to what you would use on your laptop or computer or something like that, but specialized for running uh, on yeah, low power applications and that kind of stuff. And yeah, microcontrollers are basically that little chips that are um, energy efficient, very small, uh, very cheap, and basically used everywhere now. Like in your electronic toothbrush, like in your microwave, just everywhere. Everywhere power runs through usually has a microcontroller somewhere built in uh, at the moment. And this uh, ESP8266 is yeah, it's made by this uh, Chinese company called Espressive. And I don't know why they called it 8266, but that was their first chip as, as far as I know, or the first chip that really broke through this kind of niche that they were in because they have this C-based software development kit that uh, makes it super easy for you to program this. And I had a good documentation, so people uh, quickly started to make yeah, their own Wi-Fi uh, applications on this little chip that is just costs just a few dollars and runs completely standalone. Meanwhile, usually for especially security stuff, you would use a network adapter, and then you have, I don't know, Kali Linux or something, and that's a way more yeah, complicated setup and a more expensive setup. And this thing... This thing can run on its own and only draws like 80 milliamps or something. Super, super tiny, super, super cheap, like $2 from China. And yeah, that's what makes it so unique. So can I go on Amazon and just buy like a, a six pack of these and, you know, mess around with them? Like, is that like how easy it is? Like, Pretty much. Yeah. So the chip itself would be pretty useless, but uh, luckily you can get development boards like the Node MCU. There are also like countless of other development boards using that chip. But um, the point is that you can get these boards uh, for, yeah, two or three dollars. Maybe if you buy them on Amazon in the US, it's a few dollars more, but still five dollars or less. Super cheap. And you can just plug them in. They have a USB port and you can program them with Arduino. That would be C or C++ then. You can also program them with MicroPython or Lua. And I'm pretty sure there are more languages that have been ported already. Yeah. So one of the differences, obviously, between this and a Raspberry Pi is you can't run an operating system. You can't 
run this without knowing how to program at least a little bit or at least load someone else's program on it. But once you do that, you have an incredible amount of flexibility because unlike something that's kind of getting between you and the hardware, you have very, very low level control over the hardware and ability to do stuff that would be pretty difficult to do on something that's more kind of like a higher level language or a high level device. So what's cool is, yeah, you can grab a six pack of them. If you grab them from China, it'll take, you know, 30 to 60 days to get there, but it'll cost you sometimes less than $10, depending on what kind you're getting. And that's really cool because you can afford to fry a bunch of them on a project and it doesn't matter because, you know, you fry Raspberry Pi, you're out $35. On this, you know, $2, $3, it's nothing. So there's a lot of kind of uh, ability to try and fail with these, which is cool. And then the power that you can get with them that you normally have to spend extra money just means that something that contains one of these chips can also be used for the same purpose as the development board. So again, my favorite is the example of the light bulb. Uh, Stefan was able to port some of his programs over to a chip that was inside a smart light bulb and be able to get it to do all sorts of things it was never designed to do in a consumer product. And that is pretty interesting for someone who, you know, might skip over a light bulb as a potential attack vector when everything's going crazy and they can't find the source of this deauthentication attack. So that's really interesting to me. So is it any device that has one of these or any device that has an interface that you can then exploit to load your own firmware on? So With these light bulbs, it's that all these Chinese smart light bulbs that you can buy. And okay, when I say all, then I mean nearly all, especially if you look at some, like you go on Amazon, look for smart light bulbs and you see like a weird brand name you never heard of. All these, they are super easy to spot. All these have that chip in it. It's crazy. They are in so many smart home devices nowadays. Some brands like the the Philips Hue lights, they have a different chip. So those are not as easily hacked. But um, yeah, I made a video about this and it's pretty easy to spot those that have this chip inside. And there's a community that likes to hack these devices, mostly to get open source firmware on them. So you can have these smart light bulbs with a proper firmware that is not uh, sending all your data out to China. But yeah, if this has an ESP8266 in them, then you can as well just uh, put some of my software on it uh, that can disable your Wi-Fi network or do other malicious stuff. So if I was trying to like break into a company or something, I could, you know, make a package, put a bunch of light bulbs in it, send it to the company. They get them, they go, I don't know why we got these. The address is wrong. They're just like, well, I guess we have these now. And they just use them around the office. So they plug them in. And so what happens then? So like it powers on for the first time. Does your software do something? Like how does it interact with the networks? So Pretty much depends on the software you put in. What the software I wrote, the, the offer is meant for you to kind of get started in hacking and pen testing. So it creates an access point. It hosts a little web interface you can connect to, and then you can scan for networks nearby and uh, attack them. But with this example uh, running on a light bulb, you can easily change that software, right? You can you could make it so it just automatically attacks the entire network and tries to yeah, basically do a denial of service attack for the entire network or at least for a part of the network that is in reach. But you could also sniff Wi-Fi packets and get at least a lot of metadata from that company yeah, outside that would usually uh, not be easy to access. I mean, already knowing what kind of persons go in and out uh, all day, that's super easy to get from just Wi-Fi packets. I want to make sure I understand this. So 
the 8266, it doesn't actually have Wi-Fi capability on its own. It's a chip that's already in something like a smart light bulb, and you're changing what it does by hacking into that chip and rewriting what its 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 code is. The chip on its own isn't actually able to sniff out networks, so it's got to be in one of the light bulbs that has other hardware, like a for Wi-Fi. Am I understanding that right? The ESP8266 is a microcontroller that has Wi-Fi built in. That's the magic. There wasn't really another microcontroller that has that that was as hackable as this before. And even those that were, were not as cheap and not as accessible because they're all often under NDAs and stuff like this. So if you would use this in a product, then you would have to uh, yeah, sign contracts and get access to like closed source firmware and the outside world couldn't hack this easily. But uh, this chip is now built in everywhere because it's so cheap, because it's just one chip that, uh, yeah, is a microcontroller to control. Like, it can change the light. It can not just turn it on and off. You can get these lights that change color, uh, use this in smart power plugs, but also has Wi-Fi right built into it. So it's all in one chip. And, yeah, because it's so open, you can reprogram that pretty easily and exploit it. So you're not then depending on that someone has to have this specific light bulb that's already using that chip, you could put this chip into any light bulb, any smart light bulb. Well, the manufacturer couldn't, so. You could even put this in a normal light bulb if you have some kind of uh, a voltage regulator. <laughs> I mean, it's small enough to put basically anywhere. You only have to think about getting power delivered to it. So one thing that Stefan also didn't mention that I think is really interesting is a lot of these products, so basically if you look online and there's a Wi-Fi smart switch, there's a Wi-Fi hub, like all these things are using the ESP8266 if they rely on Wi-Fi. Most of these things allow you to flash firmware to them via an over-the-air update once. So somebody could actually have one of these smart lights already in place and one time, because after that one time, you might actually need to access the physical hardware to flash it again. But one time, you can upload a malicious firmware image to a lot of these by default because they don't disable the over-the-air update. So you don't even need to ship a product to a company sometimes because if you know they have one of these light bulbs, it is possible to upload new firmware to them over Wi-Fi. That's one of the features that sometimes when these manufacturers put it into their products, they don't disable, which I think is pretty amazing. And so it's piggybacking off the fact that the person in that case, bought the light bulb on purpose and so has already given it whatever credentials it needs to be on the network. Mm -hmm. So, Stefan, I'm, so we're talking, I think, about the, the physical aspects of this for the software aspect. So the, the DAUTH application, can you talk some more about that? Like, what is it doing to, in terms of, you know, working with WPA2 to break through that? Yeah, it doesn't really have much to do about uh, WPA2 or um, uh, encryption in general. There is this this vulnerability in the Wi-Fi standard that when you send, if you break off with a Wi-Fi connection, then these DOF packets are sent to let uh, each other device know, uh, hey, I'm I'm leaving. Like if you connect to a different Wi-Fi network while already being connected, uh, it sends out a, a authentication packet to the router, letting it know like, hey, I'm I'm disconnecting just to safely disconnect basically. The problem is, these packets are not encrypted or, or signed or just have any security, basically. So anyone can send out these packets. They just need to know the MAC address of the device that is connected and the router. Or not even that. It would just be enough to have the MAC address of the router. And then you can send broadcast packets that would disconnect all network, uh, all connected devices to that Wi-Fi network. 
And yeah, that's what my DOFA project is uh, doing pretty much. And by sending these packets constantly, you have a denial of service attack. No one can connect to the network anymore because they could, in theory, they, they try, right? But every, every few milliseconds, they get another packet saying, hey, you have to disconnect or hey, I'm disconnected, right? And um, yeah, that makes you unable to use the network. Okay. So I was misunderstanding what that was doing. It's still really interesting, though. I mean, that sounds like something almost out of a movie where, like, you know, you hit a button and, like, the the whole network goes out. That's pretty cool. So what other sort of applications and things do you think are interesting in this space? Like, how would someone get started? Or is there an area where you think people should be doing more work with these? So, I think that there is a hacker community now with this chip. Uh, and I'm probably part of <laughs> starting that. But I think it could it could grow more. It has to grow more because Espressive, the company that makes these chips, they are not always, they don't want you to do the offing attacks with their products, of course, because it's bad marketing for them, right? But at the same time, it makes, yeah, this learning about hacking, just interacting with Wi-Fi so much easier because you have better access to the hardware. Like usually if you do Wi-Fi hacking, then you, yeah, you need you need a special Linux distribution with special tools, and uh, you need special hardware that that works only with special drivers. Kind of a thing, uh, super complicated and annoying, and a lot of people get lost in that process. And here you can send and receive the raw packets, like you can see the bytes in hexadecimal, right? You you write them down, you hard code the packets you send and that kind of stuff. It's just a way, uh, the, the access you get to Wi-Fi is just way more direct as you would get through, sure, you can, send, you can see the packets through Wireshark, right? But sending out packets over Linux is usually uh, consists you of using tools that do everything for you. And then you have to learn these tools and have special hardware and so on. Uh, but here you have, yeah, way more direct access to this. And I wish more people would try to use this for good as well. My tool is kind of dual use case. <laughs> of course, you can do this. Um, you can use it for do, doing very evil stuff. Um, but at the same time, I, was, I wasn't sure if I should release this, but I thought if, if things has, have to change because this vulnerability has been around forever. And um, there has been a fix in 2009 and no company is implementing it. Yeah, but I, w I would wish more people would start uh, hacking with this chip, like, yeah, trying out to port other attacks onto this because Espressive should, should see that this is a legitimate use case and not try to go against uh, us because they have tried to yeah, limit the abilities of what you can do with this chip, as in like... You can only send certain packets, that kind of stuff. What's a positive use? Like you're saying you hope more people would use this in a positive way. Like is that just the educational aspects of it or something else? Yeah, just I just love this kind of um, this overlap between uh, the maker community and the hacking community. Because the hacking community usually just works on uh, Linux, right, and, and desktop computers. And the maker community, they love microcontrollers and uh uh, building little gadgets and this kind of stuff. Uh, and this is where they overlap, right? You make little hardware um, hacking gadgets yourself. And that's super cool because you don't have to buy expensive tools anymore. Good tools is um, hard to describe. I mean, I just wish more people would 
create tools like me and try to make them as open as possible so people can learn about them. Because I see people trying to do that, but kind of fail uh, at the learning aspect. So Stefan, I'm trying to figure out like, so I, I feel like I'm a candidate for this where, you know, I know how to program. I don't really know how to program in this. I'd love to be able to do these things, but it's always been really daunting. But I'm just trying to get my head around like, well, what could I make? Like, what, what are the possibilities here that this would do? So I'm going <laughs> right. to pitch an idea to you and you tell me if it's possible. I would like to make um, something that goes on my keychain, like a little, like something the size of like a USB drive. And then I'll put a battery in it and I'll get an ES2 866. I'm trying to make sure I remember right. And what I want to do is as I walk around town, I want to get the Mac address of like any of all the phones and everything I come in contact with, just like kind of out of curiosity, like to know like how many other networks I'm interacting with and not in a malicious way. I'm not trying to break into them. I'm just trying to get a sense of like how many there are. Like, can you walk me through the steps of like how I would make that happen? Or is that something that's the right thing to do? Is this the right tool to look for, for something like that? Uh, it absolutely is. Yeah. You could make this relatively easy. I would say like 50, 50 lines of code, maybe a hundred, but not more. Yeah. Get... That's about my limit. So that's good. So <laughs> nothing more than that. So. Yeah. I would start by um, <laughs> installing the Arduino IDE, installing the tools to program and flash the ESP8266. There are a lot of tutorials online. It's easy to find. So now Arduino, that's like a framework, right? That's like an agreed upon programming framework. Yes. Is that the right way to think yeah. about it? Okay. So if I was really trying to do this for real, like maybe I'll do this this weekend. Like would I buy like the Arduino dev kit to then use with my, so I have like windows and Mac and I could set up a Linux box if I need it. Like what's the right like development environment for this? It runs pretty much anywhere. Okay. And so then is it like Arduino Studio? Is that the right thing or something? Or does it matter? Arduino so. IDE. Just go okay. to the Arduino page, click on download. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got that much. I can probably do that. So I get the IDE going. And then, so how do I interact with the chip? So it's got a USB port. I plug it into my computer. Is that the right thing to do? So the chip itself doesn't have USB but it has a serial connection and these development boards like the NodeMCU that you can buy for really cheap, they have a little USB to serial uh, chip on, on them. So you can yeah, plug them in over USB and you get a serial connection to that chip. And that's also how you program them. And in Arduino, you can then select the uh, yeah, USB 8266 as uh, the chip you want to compile your code for and select the uh, serial port that it's connected to and just press upload. Okay. So then I would need a, a battery system for this as well. Like I would just buy an off the shelf battery and a little enclosure for this, or is it more complicated than that? Uh, I don't think so. There are some development boards that you can buy with the ESP8266 that have a special uh, LiPo charger built in. So you could even get one of those standard um, LiPo batteries with a JST connector and just plug it into the board right away, and you could charge the battery over USB over that development board as well. But you could also just use, I don't know, a USB power bank would probably be the easiest way to do it. So just, again, just because I'm ignorant of this stuff. So if I'm a manufacturer and I'm making my brand new, I don't know, 
Wi-Fi beard trimmers. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to make, you know, a hundred thousand of these. I would buy ESP 8266s from Espresso, put them in all of those, and that would give them the Wi-Fi capability. If I'm making like a one-off, like you're saying, security hack gadget, I really need a development board. I don't need the the raw ESP 8266s. And what is it? It's the Node MCU is what you're saying? Yeah, that's probably the most um, the most used development board. Okay. And so that sounds almost like a Raspberry Pi, like level of sophistication. Is that fair or no? Uh, sophistication in what way? I can plug it in my my MacBook Pro and then, you know, download, you know, Arduino IDE and start working with it. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Much. So once you have once so the development board lets you interface with the chip and then and then load the kind of, compile well and then you compile code for it load that code onto the chip then is the chip then free from the development board once you deploy it in the real world you could actually yeah so m most of these boards have yeah the chip is sorted on so you can't just remove the chip easily but if you were to solder it off then that would that would work yeah you can also get one of those there are some like special uh flashing boards where you can just plug in a a little module that has just the chip kind of kind of plug it in and you can remove it again without needing to solder anything it's like hard to describe without seeing how how they work but um yeah that that is possible now i'm just asking because you know one of the things that you mentioned is that is unique about this is how small it is and so i wasn't sure if adding the development boards if if you lose that that advantage of its smallness like in mike's example he wants to have something that fits in on, on a keychain in his pocket so i mean part of this is i don't i don't know what a development board looks like so i was assuming that there are also some very small development boards that you could use and even if that's too big then sure you can use some of these uh, flasher tools uh, that you can buy to just yeah get the code onto the, to the chip itself and then remove the chip you don't have to carry around the development board anymore. Now you said a really neat thing about your application, which is that it had a web interface. So there's a web server that's on this already, or is that something you put on yourself? It's in the software development kit that you can get for that chip. Uh, it has, yeah, you, you can easily program it to join a network or create its own network to host a web server. And that kind of stuff is really straightforward. And there are a lot of examples for it. But you created the web interface on the dauthor, right? The specific one? Yes, yes. Uh, but that's just like writing the HTML and that kind of stuff. The web server is already there. Oh, so that's really awesome. So again, this is me like trying to to like make this little security gadget thing in my head, like the planning of it. So the web server is already there. So I could on my phone have, how would that work? I would need... I would need to assign a network to the device so it would have an IP address and then I'd have like an ad hoc Wi-Fi network to it to look at the the web page. And then it would also be connecting or trying to connect with uh, custom code to all the networks that I came into contact with that day, like my coffee shop. The way I would do it in this example is probably put a little switch on your gadget so you can say, okay, right now just record the MAC addresses. And if that switch is on, then it would be in an endless loop of just sniffing packets and writing it down basically in the memory. And then you can, uh, when you're at home, uh, switch it uh, over and it would then start uh, access point uh, and web server. And then you can connect to that access point. It's just like a normal Wi-Fi network your router would 
make, right? And it hosts the website on yeah the the default a IP address, which is yeah one nine two one six eight four point one. But you can also assign it a URL if you want. So it has a little uh, DNS server running on it. And that's also possible. And then you could yeah just log into that network, go to that website, and download your data. Oh, that's very cool. See, and this is where. This is where coming from a pure software background, I don't think of these things. You're like, oh, yeah, you just put a hardware switch on there. So you flick it back and forth. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, it has hardware that you can do stuff with. I forgot about that. Yeah, because you don't want it to sniff and try to host the network at the same time. That's not going to work. Can you make a dual home network? And I guess what I'm – so my next project – so we're done with that security. <laughs> my next project is – are you familiar with uh, Pi-hole? Have you heard of that? Uh, yeah, it's – like a firewall to get rid of all these uh, ads, right? It's not. I think it's not even that sophisticated. I think it's mostly just a DNS server with a big block list that if you happen to go to like adserver.com, it goes, oh, well, that's just nothing. Don't even fulfill that request. So I'm trying to figure out like, so again, I'm going to my coffee shop, which means I don't have pie hole running on my local network. Could I have it set up so that this like little device on my, on my keychain functions as a, as like a pie hole server. So I could connect as like a Wi-Fi bridge. I guess it would, at that point, it'd be basically a router that I would connect my laptop to the Wi-Fi on the device, which would then be connected to the coffee shop's Wi-Fi. And I'd have like my own little like programmable, you know, interface for that. I think that could work. I'm just not sure how well it would work. Because that chip has uh, has its limitations in terms of the throughput. So, I also have actually seen an implementation of that where you have a full NAT router um, implemented on the ESP eighty two sixty six. And the answer is it depends on how much you want to hurt yourself. Um, it's like it's a it's a lot of work to get it working. It does. There is an implementation for what you're talking about, but uh, the throughput is definitely a limiting factor. And Stefan and I both looked at this project and we were like, "What are you talking about?" Like, cl- like. The people who made it are like doctorate level, you know, like computer science people that really push this chip to the absolute limit. So it is possible, but it is a nightmare to compile and actually implement because uh, they're doing some stuff that the chip is just frankly never designed to do, which is the point of, of hacking it. Well, that's that's interesting to me to see these limits. But yeah, I think I'd probably get kicked out of the coffee shop if I like lit this thing on fire on the That's what I'm saying. <laughs> no, that's very cool. So. What, so what other kind of projects have you seen done with this? Because, I mean, this is really cool. Like, so we talked about, like, you know, my Wi-Fi sniffer, this, you know, NAT router stuff. Like, anything else that you think was like, oh, man, I, I didn't even think that was possible. So, Recently, someone found actually a exploit in the software of the ESP8266 itself and then wrote a software for another ESP8266 to exploit that which I found was kind of interesting. So you have a software running on an ESP8266 exploiting the broken Wi-Fi stack on other ESP8266s. Um, <laughs> so an yeah. IoT hacking IoT device. Yeah, pretty much. I wonder if you could actually make that cascade. So like the the first one, you know, messes up the second and the second one messes up the third and then it just spreads out until like, all the you control all the ESP eighty two sixty six. Wasn't there like two years ago? What was it called? Bro- broad porn or something? Broad uh, where yeah, all these like iPhones had these chips, right? And a lot of other smartphones as well. And they had this exploit where if you send a 
a malicious packet that was just a bit too long. So it creates some kind of overflow and then you can inject your own firmware into these devices. And people wrote worms for that. So it spreads to other devices as well. And that's super interesting. That could be possible with this chip as well. And yeah. I think I missed it. What was that called? Broadpon? From Broadcom chips. Oh, okay. Those were all vulnerable. Oh, and the actually the other thing that I wanted to remember to bring up was the satellite, because the two different characteristics that you kind of have been working with with the ESP8266 is the ability to send packets arbitrarily. So you could basically write your own packets, which is why you can do deauthing, but also sniffing. And you created a pretty elaborate uh, tool to take advantage of that with the uh, Wi-Fi satellite. Yeah, so for this uh, conference, the, the Chaos Communication Congress in 2017, first time I was going there and I was going with a couple of friends and we were all like, we have to bring some big project, right, to get attention. And bef- just a few months before that, the Wi-Fi Cactus had its uh, debut in uh, at DEF CON. And I thought like, wow, this is, this is a lot. Like he, this guy was running around with, I don't know, 20 Wi-Fi pineapples on his back and like a a car battery to power them really crazy. And he was sniffing basically all Wi-Fi channels at the same time. And I was like, hey, I can I can do the same with this chip. And it would be way smaller, way cheaper, way more power efficient. And I don't have to carry it around the entire time <laughs> on my back at least. Yeah, we I made the setup with uh, containing of 14. Uh, ES- okay, in this case, ESP32s. Going to get to that in a bit. But um, yeah, they are each of those modules is sniffing on a on on a different channel, and Wi-Fi on two point four gigahertz has fourteen channels, so that's why there are fourteen modules, and each channel is sniffed individually, so that makes sure no packets are being lost. Because usually, if you sniff Wi-Fi, then you're either gonna focus on one channel because you know what data you're looking for or which kind of device you're looking for is on that specific channel, or you just have to hop through all of the channels, but that means you're going to lose a lot of data at the same time. So with 14 microcontrollers, you can listen to every possible channel of 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi at the same time. Exactly. And the modules had little uh, OLED displays on them. So they would show a little uh, networking graph in real time of how many packets it just received in the past, I don't know, two minutes. And uh, yeah, super interesting. So you could look at this and directly see where all the network traffic is located. So you could see like channel one, six, and 11 are usually those that are most busiest. Uh, And you could see that, oh, look, there are like a thousand packets. Meanwhile, on the other channels, maybe just a hundred. So if you were in charge of security for your company and and physical security, knowing that this now exists and, and how easy this has all become, what would you do differently to keep yourself defended from someone that that wants to use this maliciously to get access to your wi-fi your your enterprise wi-fi interesting question i guess i would first make sure that the uh wi-fi hardware is good hardware and the software is up to date and that it supports protected management frames because that's the key to secure yourself from the offing attacks because that means the yeah the management like the deauthing packets are management frames, and protected management frames just means that the management frames are signed, so you can't spoof them easily, and so that would protect you against these kind of attacks first of all, 
And then I would probably make sure that I don't get uh, devices that have Wi-Fi in them in the company without approval, like without checking, like, is this running uh, proper software that isn't, yeah, some weird sketchy thing from China, but rather something professional that you can monitor and update properly. That's actually an amazing point about the Chinese software, because we're talking about tools that we create that are, are, you know, like hacking tools, but the default software that comes with these light bulbs that you get on AliExpress or other cheap websites basically connects back to China and sends information about your network back to China. And there's zero accountability for these companies in terms of where they're storing that data, what data they're gathering. And as we just discussed, these chips are capable of doing a lot of pretty sophisticated things on a network. So inviting one of these things onto your network when you don't know who it's communicating back to and what it's communicating back is a risk that most people don't really assess. So if you're bringing it into your enterprise, yes, Stefan could have loaded code on it that's going to start attacking your uh, endpoints and stuff and kicking them off. And that could cause a lot of disruption if you have cameras or, or laptops that are doing customer service. But I mean, even worse potentially could be, you could be installing a cheap light bulb that's sending information about your company or sending information about your network back to you know another country that you didn't anticipate getting that information. And depending on what your business is, that could be a big deal. So adding one of these things and allowing it to connect back to a, another server uh, on your network basically is giving access to whoever's operating that server. And that's something that you, know, you might want to strongly consider before having a device that has one of these chips inside of it come into your enterprise in the first place. So how unrealistic is it if I said like, I am going to try to do something to figure out how to, you know, make every single ESP 8266. Can I like remotely flash the firmware to make them do deauth attacks next Tuesday? I guess what is the string of things that would need to happen to to make that uh, a possibility? So, is it a possibility? It is. I mean, it depends what your target is. If you know that company has these kind of light bulbs or smart home devices installed and you know they are running this chip and then and you know they are running this uh, default Chinese firmware that comes with it, then yeah, you can easily f uh, reflash them remotely and you could just m uh, modify the default firmware and program in a little timer that says, hey, if, if that time has come, then just start de-offing everything. I guess I was trying to figure out, could I do this all remotely? Like, like if I just want to like, watch the world burn. Could I try to reach like every single ESP 8266 that's been out, that's on a network anywhere? Like what is the, the stack of exploits? Like, I don't, I don't need to be in Wi-Fi range to do this. Can I do it remotely or get one to impact another or use another exploit? Like how, how bad could this be if we were really trying to be very bad? Well, I would, if, if you don't know I mean answering this one, there's two different ways to communicate with these chips. You can be in physical proximity. So you can be up to three miles away with a directional Wi-Fi adapter uh, antenna and be pointing at one of these things and still interact with it. So you can still be within three miles and, and physically interact with it over Wi-Fi. So that's way number one. Way number two is to first set up the device to call back to a server that allows for automatic updates. As soon as you do that, then you have a situation where you can modify it any time. So if you were to give, in your scenario, a company a bunch of a box of free light bulbs that happen to connect back to your server, at any moment, you could change the firmware on it. And if they were to analyze it, it would look normal up until the point where you wanted it to attack. Now, a lot of these Chinese companies will use consolidated companies to manage the servers. So if you were to want to attack as many of these as possible, my thought would be you would go after a company that 
that does managed services for these light bulb manufacturers that are, are trying to get the data of their customers. And if you were able to put out a malicious firmware update to a lot of their clients, that would probably be the biggest impact you could have on these chips because you would all the cheap ones that are linked into the similar systems of checking back and, and feeding information would be flashed and there would be really no evidence as soon as they flash back as to what had happened. And that's really the risk. They can roll these updates back at any point. So, you know, your light bulb could update itself, do something bad, roll it back, and you would have no way of being able to tell that it happened. Yeah. And depending, so my thought is I would try to suborn the DNS. So then, you know, they're going to make a request to whatever that central system is, but it actually goes to my server instead because I've messed up the DNS and I forced this, you know, this modified firmware out to all these devices saying, all right, next Tuesday at 9am, because that's when my kid's school starts and it's really hard to get them there on time. You know, like that's when I want this to go off. And so that's possible. Like that's uh, the larger exploit from this. So. Absolutely. Potential. Hmm. All right. So next Tuesday, if you don't see me around. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and we also, we talked a lot about the limitations of this chip. There are some things you just can't do with it. And the big thing you can do is you can send arbitrary packets. You can basically write your own Wi-Fi packets and send them. And that's that's a big deal because it means you can be very creative in terms of what you're sending. But the there is a successor to this chip that's also by the same company that addresses a lot of these shortcomings. So the ESP32 is also used pretty extensively by the same community. It's Arduino compatible. It's basically the follow-up to this chip. But what's interesting is it can't do everything that the ESP8266 can do. There's some things that the ESP8266 can do that it can't do. So uh, Stefan can explain it better, but there's advantages you get with this more powerful chip, and there's also some disadvantages. Yeah, so the interesting story behind this is the ESP8266 can, like it has a official function for you to inject packets, but there is a limitation that they programmed in. So you, you can't send any packet you want. But there is a little hack where you downgrade to an older SDK version and then you basically yeah, undo this kind of limitation they programmed in and you can do whatever you want. You can send whatever packets you want. The thing is on the ESP32, from the start, they programmed in that, that uh, yeah, limit. So you can't just send whatever you want. There are some limitations you can send. Data frames, that doesn't really matter. They don't check those. But for example, the offing attack would not be possible with an ESP32 at least not without like hacking the closed source uh, binary uh, of that chip that uh, so far no one has been able to crack or no one has cared about cracking at least. The big new thing with the ESP32 is basically the processing power you get. You have not just one core, you have two cores and they are clocked at 240 megahertz, which is pretty powerful. You also have Bluetooth now. And it has a much more sophisticated sniffing functionality. So you can sniff full, like the full network traffic at higher rates. Uh, you can also sniff Bluetooth. And um, yeah, the possibilities there to just collect data is just yeah, way more sophisticated. You can also save that to an SD card way faster than on the ESP8266. So this is a way better chip to kind of analyze packets but not so good as uh, for sending packets. 
And just to underscore how powerful the ESP32 is, it's actually one of the first microcontrollers I've seen that has built-in facial uh, detection and recognition. So there's packages for the ESP32 that use those two cores to actually do facial recognition on chip. And that's super cool because there's not a lot of stuff out there that's that small and cheap, yet also powerful enough to do those sorts of things. You know, I saw a thing uh, a couple of years back where a guy built his own cat door where he combined a digital camera that would distinguish, well, the digital camera plus the software that he wrote on top of this, distinguish his cat's profile versus the neighborhood <laughs> raccoon. Because he wanted the cat to be able to use the cat door, but not the raccoons. So I'm guessing that if he knew about this chip, he could probably make a much smaller, more efficient version of this if if this facial recognition <laughs> part is now baked in. Because as I recall, it took him a long time uh, to train the system, you know, to to learn what the raccoon and the different the difference between the <laughs> raccoon and the cat. I like how you phrase this. Just like this guy went through so many raccoons <laughs> and cats, like trying to make the system work. It was a huge waste of resources. So. Well, definitely on the ESP32. Maybe not the ESP8266, but if you put a little like Wi-Fi tracker on the cat, then it might work. That would probably yeah. also be an easier solution than training a neural network. <laughs> if you say so. That's true. Oh, yeah. By the way, these chips can be super energy efficient. You can, uh, that's another great plus. Um, you can run them off a coin cell battery and just program the chip to go to sleep for, like, I don't know, it, just make it, make it wake up every minute or so to send a packet or just sniff a bit and then go back to sleep. And by doing that, you make it really energy efficient. And you can theoretically run this on a coin cell battery for like a year if you want to. Wow. Depending on what you are doing. So we know a little bit more about what these chips can do now. And we also know how we can defend against some of the attacks that they're capable of. Obviously, the attack that's uh, possible against WPA2 has been there for a really, really long time. And as these devices continue to get cheaper and cheaper, it's going to be more important for IT professionals to be aware of what they can do to mitigate this problem. Because while WPA3 is rolling out, not everyone is going to be there yet for quite some time. So there are solutions to defeating these sorts of attacks, provided people know that they're out there and that they are possible. Because yeah, getting a shipment of new light bulbs sounds sweet. I, I love free stuff until we start getting all sorts of problems and we can't identify the source of where this attack is coming from. You know, either you're going to have to go through and unplug every individual light bulb and smart switch and everything else to figure this out, or your company can start implementing uh, protected management frames. And then this becomes kind of a, a problem of the past. So I also wanted to ask uh, Stefan, like if you wanted to get started just figuring out what this is capable of doing. I know that you also have some boards that have been custom designed to do some of the uh, more offensive attacks that we're talking about. How could somebody get started with uh, learning about deauthing on the ESP8266 or, or what kind of hardware would be best to get themselves set up on? Because there's a lot of places to buy this chip. There is. Yeah, I would just start by going to my GitHub. So github.com slash spacehoon. There is a repository called uh, ESP8266 deauthor. Uh, I, I don't think you can miss it or you just Google for the author, you probably find it. And yeah, I try to explain a lot there. There's also a, a wiki page that you can find. And there are custom made boards just for my project that you can pick up if you don't want to, uh, or if you're a bit afraid of flashing this chip first, like you just want to try out the software and then kind of go from there. Then you can buy um, one of these custom made boards that, already come pre-flashed with the software and have everything hardware related that you could need. 
already built in and come with a battery connector and all that sorts of stuff. And it also supports me and the project. Nice. Very cool. And are there any other projects you're working on that we should keep an eye on, like anything to uh, look out for in the next couple months? The Wi-Fi duck is something I'm working on, a USB uh, keystroke injector, uh, similar to the Hack5 rubber ducky, but with Wi-Fi. So you can also just connect to it. It's creating an access point with a web interface where you can store, edit, and run the different ducky scripts uh, in real time. And yeah, it's pretty cool to to learn uh, about keystroke injection attacks without always needing to like plug in a different SD card and that kind of stuff because you can run it in, in real time. And um, yeah. So with my fancy long range antenna, I could go to the second floor of like a, a building, plug this into the back of a computer and then go really far away and via Wi-Fi interact with an access point and in real time be injecting keystrokes into a computer like a mile away. Exactly. Super cool. <laughs> That's really cool. All right, Stefan. Well, thank you for joining us on our second episode of the Verona Security Tools podcast. I also want to thank our Verona's guests today, uh, Mike and Blair, for joining us and asking us some great questions to fully flesh out what this is capable of doing because myself, I've been working with this for about a year now and I constantly forget that some of the capabilities of this are just kind of mind-blowing in terms of what such a small and cheap device is capable of doing in such a, a little package. So thank you everyone for joining me and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Awesome. Great talking to you, Stefan. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Bye. <laughs>